You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So I wonder if you could just start off by telling us who you are, and how you became interested in electoral interference. Do you want to take it away, uh, Magda? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, hello, everyone. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me to the podcast. Uh, very topical podcast, Andrew. Um, as I've mentioned, I'm a PhD candidate at King's College in London. My research focuses on the utility and limits of US COVID action. Um, as a foreign policy tool and national security tool in the post-Cold War. And obviously with uh, the recent examples and the Russian interference in the presidential elections in 2016, um, I became very much interested in the um, pervasive use of social media and the internet. So I'll leave it here for now and I'm sure I'll talk about it a little bit more as we go on. Thanks, Magda. And Calder? Thanks, Andrew. Um, great to be with you guys. Uh, my name is Calder Walton. Um, I'm the Assistant Director of Harvard Kennedy School's Applied History Project, which is an effort to use history to inform public policy. I also help to run the research component of the Harvard Kennedy School Intelligence Project. Before this, I was at Cambridge in the UK uh, and also a barrister. Um, my interest in um, electoral interference is part of a book I'm writing, finishing this year, hopefully, um, about British, American, and Russian intelligence in the Cold War. I'm calling it the Long Cold War, because I'm arguing that it started off much earlier than traditionally supposed in 1917. And contrary to popular beliefs, the Cold War didn't actually finish in 1991, but carried on up to the present day. So um, electoral interference by all sides is one component of this we see repeated in different guises throughout the 20th century, or what I call the Long Cold War. And Dov? 
Yeah, so my I, my name is Dov Levine. I'm an assistant professor at the Department of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong. And electoral interference has been my main research topic since the early 2010s. And they, I came to research this uh, by sheer coincidence. You know, I came across uh, a case of this type of interference in a book that I was reading. And of course, over time, it became clear to me how common it was. I had, an, it had a growing interest in understanding this, you know, rarely studied phenomena, you know, just like an archaeologist, you know, going through a jungle and suddenly coming across this lost city and saying, wow, uh, before there was only one building, it's a whole city. Let me start digging more and more and more. <laughs> I guess the most obvious question is, are intelligence agencies interfering in the current U.S. presidential election? If so, who and how and why? Does anybody want to take that one on? <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to try that. Um, okay. But I think there is some growing evidence that the Russian GRU is involved in electoral intervention against Biden and the Democrats and for Donald Trump in the 2020 elections in a few ways. First, there's the story that just broke out last week in which a, a supposed laptop of Hunter Biden with supposed incriminating emails of uh, Joe Biden and of Hunter Biden came out. Um, another possible um, part of its intervention are leaks of recordings of Joe Biden talking in 2015 with the then president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, about trying to stop corruption in the Ukraine that they were leaked out by Russian, by, sorry, by Ukrainian member of parliament, a guy called Derkash, which seems to have ties to the GRU. There's also some evidence that uh, accusations of sexual uh, harassment against Biden a few months ago by Tara Reid, which was a former worker in Biden's uh, Senate office, was in some way encouraged by Russia. You know, one of her lawyers worked for a Russian propaganda network, uh, Sputnik, and Tara herself was two or three years before this accusation, wrote a blog post praising Vladimir Putin to high heavens. Um, there's also some evidence that Russia has tried covertly to spread anti-Biden fake news through the creation of at least two fake news websites one called Peace Data, and another called American and European-based citizens, with news taken from elsewhere, and, and even, you know, hiring some unwitting American journalists to create more. And they may have also tried to create the networks of fake social media accounts to spread fake news from these two fake news websites and their links. So while none of this is conclusive, we do seem to have some and growing evidence that Russia is intervene, intervening for the GRU in this election uh, against uh, Joe Biden. Is it, are any other countries interfering? Is it, is it just Russia? Uh, Magda, you wanted to jump in? 
Oh, yeah, I was just, as Dov was talking, I was just um, thinking both the Department of Homeland Security and the DNI have issued various statements over the past few months indicating that in addition to Russia, which appears to be most sophisticated when it comes to these um, operations, um, China and Iran have also um, been interfering. Whether they're targeting specifically the electoral process or not um, is less clear, but they are certainly um, active. Uh, for example, um, the DNI office assessed that the Iran is seeking to undermine U.S. democratic institutions, and President Trump obviously wouldn't be in their interest if he remained in the office for obvious reasons. So there's definitely uh, pressure coming from these two countries as well, um, but they just don't seem to be as sophisticated as the, as the Russian influence has been. Calder, it sounds like with your yeah. current research project, you're in a perfect position to give us some historical context. Um, is this yeah. is this something new, or is it is it well, is it different in terms of quality or quantity? Yeah, can I just um chip in on the first that first question? Uh, absolutely. Um, so all right. So to answer your question, Andrew, are any other countries um in interfering, attempting to interfere in this this election that we're on the eve of? Um, let's turn it around. Uh, I think it would be shocking and inconceivable if other countries, including Russia, were not doing so. Uh, in many ways, 2016 offers a paradigm for other countries about what can be done uh, cheaply, effectively, efficiently. Um, other countries, as Magda and Dov have pointed out, um, are looking on countries uh, clearly like China, but North Korea, Iran, other actors as well, are looking on about what can be done. Um, Robert Mueller warned when he made his um, gave his report that um, Russia would attempt to meddle to interfere again um, in 2020, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. But the difference between what we face in 2016 uh, and even further back historically and now is that we've got a perfect storm, it seems to me. Um, we've got an election, we've got um, the new information space, digital space, and of course, we've got a pandemic. Um, and this is the pandemic is fusing with the election, fusing with other groups such as QAnon, conspiracy groups, um, to, to make what seems to be a perfect storm of, of people already um, worried, alarmed, um, polarized, worried about the pandemic, add to this outside um, interference. And I think that we're, as Magda pointed out, we're only going to see the true impact of this, I think, what's going on now um, in, in the future, in the weeks, months to come. But it's undoubtedly the case that uh, foreign countries are interfering. Is the lurking issue, the, um, the huge elephant in the room, which is Trump's own personal connections with Russia and whether Russia has compromising material on the president of the United States. This is something that Mueller did not get to the bottom of, his, did not even attack in his report. Um, and it's something that um, may be revealed by Trump's tax returns. And there are all sorts of, um, as your listeners probably know, all sorts of lawsuits at the moment trying to get to the bottom, trying to get them disclosed. So this is a form of a clear, this could constitute a clear form of electoral interference if a foreign country, Russia, holds um, financial um, compromising material over 
uh, the President of the United States. That will be quite the dis disclosure if that turns out to be the case. I just I wondered as well, just to like set the scene for where we are now, what do we know about electoral interference in the 2016 election? So what hard evidence do we have now? And was it um, extremely significant or was it, you know, um, given that the margins were so small in certain states, was it the, 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 the drop that made the cup runneth over, so to speak? Yeah, uh, we know uh, actually quite a lot based upon uh, the Mueller report and, you know, other evidence that came out, you know, in indictments beforehand and a lot of uh, other research. We know that there was quite a serious and significant Russian intervention. It was composed largely of two major parts. One major part was basically um, the hacks of, you know, the DNC and the Clinton campaign, in which basically uh, Russian hackers basically hacked, were able to hack into uh, both, take out a very large amount of data. First create a, a website called DC Leaks in order to spread it. And when they saw that that is not giving them quote unquote enough, they then uh, provided it in some manner to WikiLeaks. We don't know exactly how yet, but they provided it in some manner to WikiLeaks. And then Assange uh, published it uh, over the course of the last few months of the election. So that was one key component. Another component was uh, the spreading of uh, fake news and the uh, anti-Trump uh, propaganda, which we know uh, basically was done uh, through uh, the Internet Research Agency, the IRA, a St. Petersburg uh, private company that seems to have been contracted in some way, spreading fake news and propaganda, and even, you know, in some cases, you know, trying to create demonstrations and things like that, so to speak. And we know that they bought something like $100,000 in ads through Facebook. So we have quite a lot of very strong evidence that Russia was involved in 2016 through this uh, message. Did it work? Well, uh, basically, in my uh, new book on this topic, uh, Meddling in the Ballot Box, it came out a few weeks ago at uh, Oxford University. And I found it actually had um, a significant effect on uh, the election results that basically uh, it increased the vote share of uh, Donald Trump by about 2.03% and increased the number of electoral college votes by about uh, 75 electoral college votes. And we see that in various ways, you know, uh, basically both from uh, trying to, from, you know, pre-election surveys in which uh, relevant questions about some of these leaks were asked, as well as, you know, um, data from Google on, you know, how many people were searching for WikiLeaks leaks, in which I was finding that um, in the United States in general and inside um, in the key swing states in particular, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, um, and uh, Pennsylvania, there was a big increase in keyword searches for WikiLeaks in the after these uh, leaks have come out, which indicated there was a significant amount of interest in uh, these uh, in these hacks, as well as, as I said, you know, evidence from these pre-election surveys that it actually shifted votes towards Trump and against uh, Clinton. 
I mean, that's the crucial data, it seems to me, that we've been missing perhaps until your 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 book. Um, but the surveys, get, are they granular enough to actually say, um, you know, I and as a, as a on the a recipient of this, I read this and I changed my mind. Or how are you tabulating that? Because that's let me just paint the picture for the audiences. That's been the big uh, lurking question in in all of this. Is we know that I think Facebook disclosed that 120 odd million people read um, uh, or, or received disinformation of some kind um, over over their platform. We know that Trump won the election by 80,000 um, votes in key swing states. Um, is it conceivable that 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 uh, you know that this disinformation onslaught pushed it over the line? Yes, but I up until now I've never really been able to get to the bottom of the nature of the survey, any kind of survey data. So it sounds like what Dov is doing is really a, a breakthrough um, in that regard. I'll, I want to pick up on that point and just push you a little bit, Dov, on the 75 electoral college votes. How do you prove that 75 electoral college votes went for Trump um, and not for Clinton? It asks people specifically if they read those leaks, at least in one of them, that's the question that is being asked. And, we, and, I, and that qu survey question find that people who read or heard about uh, some of these leaks changed their mind negatively. Naturally, I agree, you know, we cannot know 100% for certain if they are, you know, saying the truth to the pollster or, you know, uh, that uh, we can be 100% certain that uh, this was the factor that they changed their mind. But this is the same tools we use in the social sciences in order to know whether, you know, uh, people voted based upon, you know, their economic situation or other factors. As for the effects in the swing states, as I said, they, we have evidence that this was interesting to a significant people in, in a significant number of people in these swing states. In other words, the number of people, the number of keyword searches for WikiLeaks in these three states is much larger than the number of votes in these three states that shifted. You know, of course, other factors mattered in this election. You know, like for example, we know that there was a regional recession in the United States in part of the Midwest that hit right in that year to Hillary Clinton's misfortune. You know, some mistakes that were done in the campaign. Other issues, like for example, Comey was a week before the election. You know, um, declaring that he is closing and opening, you know, the investigation, so to speak, um, about those emails. And so naturally, that I don't think was the only factor, but certainly I think that this was an important factor. And I think there's good, pretty good evidence that that was the factor that, you know, was the straw that broke the camel's back. One thing that I, you know, I want to get back to. Um, is the role of intelligence and intelligence as when Spycast does intelligence and espionage were one of a dozen when we do general politics were one of 5,000. So if you could try to draw out the intelligence agencies and, 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 and the, the specific role that is going on there as only intelligence agencies that do this stuff, um, help, help us get our head around that. What's going on? 
intelligence interference has been around for a long time and you know popes and monarchs have uh, throughout the history have been subject to foreign subversions when it comes to uh, election interference uh, states and state agencies don't necessarily have a monopoly on on election meddling um, we've seen the internal actors can also influence elections from organized crime influences in Colombia to, you know, Cosa Nostra in Italy and so on. But in this particular uh, instance, we're discussing and we're talking about um, subverting foreign regimes through election interference. And generally, uh, states and intelligence agencies do, um, do are involved in this uh, particular effort. But uh, that is not to say that, um, that they're the only um, actors who are involved. Uh, very often you'll get, for, for example, and uh, as it was revealed in, in uh, Russia's case, um, they used a proxy organization or, or agency to interfere uh, in social media by creating fake social media accounts, etc. Guru, for example, obviously had gotten involved themselves and, and they're part of a, of a, of a Russian um, state and intelligence agency, but um, there are proxy factors also that can be uh, the, and have been engaged to conduct these type of operations. So it's not necessarily just an intelligence agency's purview. I would say that it is definitely something that has pushed intelligence agencies to, um, you know, to, to evolve. I'd absolutely agree with what Magda just, just said. Um, I mean, if this starting um, point, you know, um, to what extent do states interfere in the electoral process of other countries? Well, yes, that's been around as long as elections have been around. And there's different types of, of doing, different ways of doing that. So everything from lobbying, I mean, all states are driven by their own self-interest um, and they will try to promote their own self-interests um, in other states one way or another. So this could be through overt um, lobbying, this can be through um, sort of um, halfway measures um, that are not quite open diplomacy, but um, you know, subtle hints of what, what country X would like to have happen in country Y. But it seems to me that then we are in a very different um, position when it comes to clandestine, non-attributable interference in the domestic affairs of another country. That's what sets this, um, what we're talking about right now, Russian interference in the US and historical examples of that um, during the Cold War and earlier is the non-attributable nature of it. So if um, a leading country statesman stands up and, and, and says, we, we would really like to see this government in this country, um, you know, in the next election, that's already pretty, um, for want of a better word, dodgy in terms of um, <laughs> statecraft, but it does happen. And history is full of examples of where it happens, where the United States, for example, says their preferred outcome in a, in a foreign election would be X, that does happen. But there's a it's a world apart from a, a non-attributable clandestine activity to um, promote a desired outcome in that country. And it's the non-attributable um, nature of it that sets it completely differently, whereas the, the fingerprints of the government in charge um, cannot be found um, if it works effectively. Um, and disinformation is one component, one way of doing that, planting um, essentially fake news um, in, a, in a target audience 
that will promote a desired effect. Uh, so principles not new, means in which they're doing it is new, um, and it's the uh, the secret clandestine nature of it with into, with that makes what the intelligence services do different to other forms of statesman statescraft and lobbying. That's really helpful, uh, and it's also a good jumping off point onto the next thing I would like to look at, it, which is in terms of the forums. Could could you help us break them down a bit more? So, you know, a bot with no followers on Twitter putting out some information is qualitatively different from WikiLeaks dumping um, information weeks before a presidential election. Help us understand some of the ways in which this breaks down. I would I would say that there's multiple ways you can interfere in an election, you know, either in a covert way or in an overt way. So one common message is campaign funding, you know, literally giving money uh, usually secretly to the preferred side or some kind of in-kind aid. And it's, you know, actually the most common way of interference, so to speak, according uh, to my uh, research. And in some cases was given covertly, literally like one of those, you know, when crime movies, you know, there's literally a meeting in some hotel room, you bring a big bag, a big black bag of money, or, you know, a suitcase, you open it, the other side takes a look and then takes it, so to speak, you know. We know from uh, some pastors that that's literally how it was done. Another message is what I call uh, dirty tricks, which includes spreading fake news on the unwanted side, leaking embarrassing to information on them. But it also includes other stuff, like for example, trying to split up that party, the party of the preferred, of the unwanted side up, you know, break it up or break up, you know, it's party coalition, you know, harm the candidate in some way sabotage the chaperation in such some manner, you know, like, for example, try to prevent campaign donations reaching to it in some way, and things like that, so to speak. Another message is, you know, um, campaign assistance, you know, literally giving, you know, literally giving the, prefer the preferred side some um, assistance in managing a better campaign. Um, another thing that I think is often overlooked is that the future of uh, the country that Calder and I are from, it feels like it's been in the balance for the past 10 years or so. So we've seen a referendum of, on Scottish independence. We've seen a referendum on Brexit. Uh, maybe you've got some views here, Calder. Is there any evidence that someone has been putting their finger on the scale vis-a-vis uh, the constitutional future of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland? What a what a great question! Can I just quickly <laughs> add in on the um, uh, before turning to that really quickly the the previous question Absolutely. about yeah. So I just picking up what Dov just said. It seems to me the way I would like to think about it. Maybe it's helpful for your listeners. Um, the way that these um, the spectrum of of dirty tricks, uh, as Dov called them, um, I I would call them influence operations. So in, influencing. Um, uh, the affairs of another country in one way or another, um, either from overt propaganda um, through somewhere in the middle to uh, the use of uh, agents of influence. That's one thing we haven't talked about. People who are recruited either wittingly or unwittingly to promote and um, disseminate disinformation 
um, bribery, money, all the way through at the other end, uh, I, I think, um, sabotage. So actually what we haven't talked about now is um, the reports that um, the Russian military intelligence to you um, actually interfered in the um, ballot uh, mechanisms, the computer systems for electoral counting. Uh, now that has, um, has, I've been looking for that story over the last uh, uh, months and that hasn't appeared, at least in the public domain. What's going on about that? I don't know. We know that there was an intent. We know that there was some capability of doing that in 2016. Quite what the effects of that will be with the um, um, essentially malware installed that presumably could be activated. Don't know. Don't know if it's actually um, uh, tantamount to anything uh, significant or not. So anyway, watch this space. In terms of other countries, uh, Andrew, your question, great question. Well, if you read the recent Russia report um, uh, by the um, Intelligence and Security Committee in the UK, they are uh, pretty forceful about how little attention has been uh, given by either the government or um, the intelligence services to retrospectively look back at the 2016 Brexit referendum uh, with regard to Russian meddling in it. Um, the report says that when um, um, MI5 was asked to make a, 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 an assessment of this, it was, I forget these, I think three or four sentences long, their report. Um, this is such a politically hot potato that nobody wants to go near it. Not least, it has to be said, the politicians, this is the same phenomenon on both sides of the Atlantic, politicians who benefited from elections um, with, in which there was Russian interference do not want to open that cupboard and look and see if there are any Russian skeletons inside. And if, you, if your listeners go to the, uh, the recent Russia report, as I said, um, that was long delayed um, in the UK, um, but was released, I think, in July, um, or certainly sometime over the summer, um, you will see how little attention the UK government has given to um, going back over those um, those key key key, uh, key parts of the British um, uh, of the UK Union um, uh, and the election uh, decisions taken about its future, both with Scottish uh, independence and then with a Brexit referendum. So we really need somebody like Dolph to come along and to do a good <laughs> forensic analysis of the Brexit referendum and Russian meddling through surveys. Yeah, uh, Dov, do you have any ideas for our next project? <laughs> <laughs> we have to start digging into that case as well. <laughs> so, Magda, you've looked a lot at covert action. and Yes. We'll be right back after this. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. 
all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Could you try to unpack what some of what's happened in the past sort of 10, 15 years tells us about the changing nature of intelligence and espionage? Is there, is there something different going on? We've spoken about the principle of electoral interference. So Dov has the yeah. great example in his book of the papal enclave coming about as a result of foreign powers trying to make sure that their person became the Pope, but just yeah. focused back in on intelligence and espionage. Is there is there something different that you see happening in the contemporary landscape? Does that map onto shifts in the information space and you know the yeah. growth of uh, the internet, the Internet of Things? Um, or, yeah, it's a big question, but I'm going to put a ball in your po- in your coat. <laughs> and let you try to return it as best as you can. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Andrea. I really appreciate this one. <laughs> uh, do you have another hour? Um, so I think uh, one of the things that I've, I've been trying to focus on, uh, we, we have learned uh, uh, a lot from our experience in, in Cold War action, COVID action and um, uh, electoral interference, um, and regime changes, et cetera, et cetera. There's some amazing books that have been written about um, about that um, from our colleagues in the US uh, in the last uh, few years. Um, but one of the things that I'm trying to determine is how, how, how has that changed? So for example, um, obviously COVID action methods, Cold War COVID action methods um, are not forgotten, but new technologies and increased interconnectedness between cultural, economic, and technological ones between states provides a wider um, array of means and methods that can be used to influence or, if you will, uh, manipulate targets. So, but that's not to say, so what I'm seeing is that it's not like the, the old methods are no longer valid and we need to adjust to the new world we live in that is um, technologically savvy. Uh, on the contrary, operations can move from virtual environments into real world. Um, if you think about electoral interference during a Cold War, half of these operations might not have might have gone actually unnoticed by the Americans in the American society. But with the technological advancements and the proliferation of social media platforms, um, it, it was you, you, the Americans were basically given the the front row seat, uh, if not the leading role in uh, in, um, in in these um, covert um, op- uh, covert action um, efforts, or as the, the Russians would call them, active um, active measures. But what the Russians did and what they demonstrated is that they weaponized social media to conduct information warfare, which generally falls under the political category of covert action. So that leads to a whole different uh, host of issues and how, you know, how can the U.S. legally respond to, to interferences like this? You know, will the CIA still have the responsibility to, to respond to these attacks? And I think um, in 2018, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. Cyber Command was given a new, uh, new um, strategy, uh, a, a, the new um, 
cyber uh, sorry cyberspace strategy strategy called defend forward again this is something that we would not have seen before and um you know particularly during the cold war and the strategy is um intended to disrupt um malicious cyberspace activity at its source so it, it's not it, this is a significant step it's not that they're just defending they they actually the strategic approach includes disabusing adversaries adversaries of the idea that they can operate with impunity in cyberspace so we see all all of these things and and obviously there's the legal component of it that we actually have to keep in in, in mind as well as to you know who has the the responsibility for this and you know congressional uh, oversight accountability how do we juggle all of this but what we do see is that they are most certainly responding to these intrusions um in the cyberspace domain so so they are doing something so there's evidence of that magda i mean <clears throat> the way that you just set it up so so well then um it, two questions came to mind and i'd just like to play devil's advocate about one of them but actually to your point we are in a much more broad information warfare landscape now so my my question is and to play devil's advocate is it really any responsibility of an intelligence community to um is it their role to be involved in what is really comes down to things like digital literacy this is a, it seems to me a much broader um social generational effort that we're going to need to get on top of very quickly about this about teaching people the difference between facts and fiction that when you mm -hmm. read something online you need to look at it critically and just because it's online doesn't mean it's true so so the u.s intelligence community can do everything that all of its tools in its toolkit in order to frustrate um, disinformation and other malicious activities at source but unless we actually have an education about how to uh, interact with the internet uh, and information and news all of that's going to be for naught and i and i think that for me what's what's missing in the us uh, british western strategy is actually grappling with that fundamental thing that it's not just about forensic attacking um, mm. and finding an actor we're involved whether we like it or not we're already involved in a much much broader information warfare space and i would say it's even worse than it was in the cold war because at the moment the internet the internet obviously makes it cheaper quicker easier than ever before in history to transmit disinformation uh, to false information um, combined with the fact that now we really do seem to be in this situation of the post-truth era and then you will have the next part of the conversation at least in the us here is well that doesn't matter because there's no such things as facts anyway i mean we're literally there so i, yeah. I what i'm getting at tonight is i i don't i think that and to your point andrew so what what's the role of intelligence communities well, I think that that touches on something that I would really like to explore. People sitting in their living rooms on the internet are now on the front lines of a bigger struggle over meaning. I think that would be a really great thing to explore. And Dov, I think you want to jump in? I think that one of their biggest flaws in this regard is exposing the puppet master. In other words, if they come across such meddling, to give that information and give details on it in a way so detailed that anyone except, you know, the most, 
you know, anyone that is open-minded enough to be persuaded would say, oh, this is Russian uh, stuff, so to speak. We shouldn't trust it, so to speak. We should ignore it, so to speak. And that is a pretty effective way to deal with many of these covert actions for my knowledge of how such meddling works because a lot of the covert operations are done covertly because they are afraid that if they get exposed, they would be like vampires, you know, when they get exposed to the sun, you know, fade away and die off. So um, basically one key role, I think intelligence agencies can have that if they are lucky enough to find any evidence of such interference, it is to actually give the information out to the general public in that country so they know to be aware and at least those who can be persuaded will be persuaded not to take it seriously. We need to persuade anyone who's not yet persuaded that this stuff should not be done even if it's for your quote unquote side. Micah? Um, both, thank you very much for your comments. Both of you made some very, very valid points. And um, but one of the things that, that and Dov, I'll, I'll start with you. One of the things that, that I'm concerned about is the fact that the intelligence community and the, the American electorate, the American people um, are, um, are not on the same page here. They have uh, enough damage has been done that anything that the intelligence community may tell the Americans today, they're not going to believe it. They're not going to believe because there's so much disagreement there. Nobody knows where the, the right information is coming. Nobody knows who's telling yeah. the truth. It, it, it's, it's very, very complicated to find that, you know, the, the, the mitigating way of, uh, sorry, to find a way to mitigate, uh, you know, this type of, uh, this type of future that exists in the American society. I mean, if anything, the, the interference that we've, we've seen over the past few years has an, you know, amplified all the fissures that had already existed in the society. But this is exactly what can be done. And Paul made a great point. You know, it's not the intelligence agency's responsibility to do this. So there has to be a, a different way to communicate uh, with, um, with individuals like that. It can't be, they can't be just left on their own or, or, or just, the fact that they are, you know, disengaged from the civic affairs because they've just had enough of, of, of everybody telling them, you know, lies. But now we're talking about, you know, what are some of the mitigating efforts that we can put in place to do this, uh, to, to prevent um, election manipulations and, and, and uh, meddling. Um, and one of the good things that, you know, that we have enough data thus far why don't we just you know, work on you know looking for um, uh, anticipate what subgroups of Americans are most likely targets and on what specific information you know there is another uh, what platforms um, are, are better for particular manipulation of a particular group or subgroup of people and you know using machine learning models to track and understand and mitigate the spread of of, uh, of false messages and, on social medias so there are ways to do this and it does not necessarily need to rest on the intelligence community because god knows intelligence community has already done enough uh, in, in in many respects and you know as a result of post 9 11 events in the strategic intelligence um, has been broadly damaged and i'd like to pick up on both the the excellent points just made now that um this is actually whether we know it or not the lesson about dealing with soviet disinformation in the later cold war where the us and its allies actually developed a methodology to deal with uh, disinformation coming from the Kremlin then. And it was built around um, the idea of 
the Active Measures Working Group. And this was designed specifically to counter Soviet disinformation. And it has some successes dealing with, for example, countering the disinformation about the AIDS pandemic. And it, it, it was built on a three-tier strategy. And it's just what Dov just mentioned. It was about report, analyze, and publish. And it's working RAP. It's working methodology was that light is the best disinfectant when it comes to disinformation. Just as Dov said, they're a bit like vampires. You cast light on it and the disinformation disappears. But the key lesson from that period that they discovered in the 1980s was that any kind of effort to do with counter, what they call counterintelligence, finding out about the source, attributing the disinformation to source, to the Kremlin or another third party actor, that was all well and good, that was necessary, but it absolutely wasn't sufficient when it comes to dealing with disinformation. And that what had to be um, involved that, uh, to do that was creating an informed citizenry. So we've gone from, we still need an informed citizenry, um, but now it's about digital literacy, just as we've, uh, as we've been saying, that um, what, this was actually the lesson from the 1980s, and we have um, lost that memory. We are rediscovering it now, and it, it needs to be changed for the, um, the modern um, digital um, era. I, I argue in, a, in an article I've got coming out called um, What's Old is New Again <laughs> about all of these. Um, I say that what, what's really needed is something uh, along the lines of a public-private partnership, um, government and um, um, particularly the tech, the tech industries fused together in a way that they have not been in, in some sort of coherent strategy to deal with this issue that isn't going to go away. The really, I'll just finish with this, the really sad and depressing thing is that we find from um, recent research about disinformation on is that we, we now know that if Facebook or an, uh, another social media platform puts a health warning on a, um, uh, uh, a site, some disinformation, some news, and says this isn't necessarily, this can't be trusted, actually that increases people wanting to look at it. So it's actually completely counterintuitive. But maybe that's human nature, I don't know, but it certainly is. That shows to me that any effort that the, that the social media companies alone take that's going to be insufficient. It has to involve cross-governmental, cross-domain, um, um, cross uh, and cross-sectors. When you were speaking there, Calder reminded me of the spy catcher book by Peter Wright, um, trying to control, <laughs> trying to control its publication, ended up creating yeah. such a brouhaha that it became an international Completely counterproductive. <laughs> I don't want to go down too much of a, a of a wormhole here, but I mean, part of this goes to the nature of truth, right? Um, a bigger epistemological question. Um, so in the lobby of the, the, the old building at the CIA headquarters, it says, uh, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. What are the sites of those truth though? And I guess any American election is a, an extremely high stakes event. So there's a lot of people like trying to push it one way or another. Um, but if you're someone that can benefit from someone not knowing the truth or, or a constituency of people not having full access to information 
are are undermining the 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 plinth on which they try to erect truth. Um, that might be politically advantageous. So I guess I guess one of my questions to all three of you is, how, how yeah, what what's going on here? How can intelligence agencies navigate this? Uh, how can Western societies navigate this? How do we how do we deal with this landscape that we see ourselves in? Well, I think from, from my perspective, I'll jump in that we need to start with the we need to start with the fundamental point that there is still such a thing as truth uh, and facts, and it's the primary duty of intelligence agencies, Western intelligence agencies, to tell truth to power. So actually, I'm pretty confident that when we when the records come out in due course, we'll find that the U.S. intelligence community in particular has been very good at still continuing with its primary mission. Now, uh, the problem is that the, the power, the people in power and broader, as you pointed out, broader audiences actually just now everything's up for grabs and, and don't think there is such a thing as truth. But but I, I am, a, for me, I'm a glass half full kind of person. And I do think some sort of sense and sensibility will, will return and that we will uh, remember the basics um, of the post enlightenment world, which is that there are such things as facts and science, and um, they can be tested through hypothesis and proven and disproven, and that there is not such things as two different truths and alternative facts. So, uh, but this isn't, as we've already said, this isn't going to be solved by any clandestine service trying to do its part. It's it's much broader. Just slightly shifting tack, uh, how have intelligence agencies changed or transformed as a result of uh, what we could call the new electoral interference? Have, have their tactics changed? Have their uh, institutional structures changed? Um, or are they using the same tools to tackle something different? I, my, my sense is that we're what we're witnessing at the moment is really a um, huge watershed moment for intelligence communities um, across the across the world, across in particular in the West, uh, trying to get to grips with the new digital revolution and being pushed to compete against open source providers of intelligence. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of providers um, like Bellingcat that are doing extraordinary um, uh, data mining research uh, from open source um, material that are really forcing intelligence services, be it in Britain or the US, to deliver something extra um, from um, uh, the, to distinguish what they can offer policymakers and decision makers compared to those kind of um, open source intelligence outfits. So um, I think that intelligence communities are struggling, um, both in the changed information landscape um, and in terms of just, yeah, well, in terms of just adapting to the new reality of so much information being available and that other providers are able to mine that information. So they're asking some really existential questions being asked um, and asking themselves, what is it that we can do that others can't? They're, they're, I mean, and actually, it seems to me that there might be a good argument about intelligence services becoming in the new, in this century, becoming more um, focused, uh, more nimble, um, 
and doing things, concentrating on doing things that other providers in the public sector or other parts of government can't do. So you're always going to have a need for, for example, espionage, human agents run abroad, um, the recruitment of sources overseas. Uh, that can and should be done by an intelligence service. Um, other areas like um, big data open source um, uh, data mining, should that be done by an intelligence service or should it be done more efficiently by others? That's the huge um, question that we're facing. I, I think, and I couldn't agree more with Calder, um, I, this is the intelligence communities being presented with a, with a massive issue, um, but I, I think you know, they've adapted and they reformed um, to reorganize, to better cope uh, with the demands of the information age. Um, but the whole um, shift and the whole change is also related to the wider government restructuring about um, a proper strategic approach for cyber in general. And I think that there is there are bigger issues there. It seems important to me to accurately diagnose the problem because if you overestimate electoral interference, then all of a sudden every election is delegitimated or every, you know, one person, one vote does well, it doesn't count because it's not really us that make the decision. But if you underestimate the dangers, then, you know, there's inherent um, risks with that too, because the outcome might not be the democratic wish of nation X. If, if there's a danger in overestimating electoral interference and there's a danger in underestimating electoral interference, um, how do we accurately diagnose the problem of electoral interference? I, mean, I would say that the best way to see it is as a major problem. Well, I find in my book, meddling in the ballot box, that this stuff increases the vote of the preferred side by 3% on average. So I think that uh, taking it very seriously and taking it as a major problem that needs to be dealt with is the proper perspective, so to speak. Magda? The one thing that, that came to my mind as, as, as you asked the question is that it, the Pandora's box has been opened. There's now we, interference has, we know it happens and even if it doesn't it will be in the back of our minds so whether we you know we think about interference um whether we overestimate or underestimate it the, the reality is it's, it's going to be there right the bigger challenge we have is how do we deal with with it uh, as in it being the knowledge um of um what impact it might have had on the on the results of the election right and i think this is where the, the problem is i mean can you go back and 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 this make a decision uh based on that whether somebody should have won or shouldn't have or you know what happens once we decide that yes these elections were um uh, were impacted by foreign uh, uh foreign actors do we go so do we go you, does the other candidate now win so there's issues that are related to what do we what happens when we actually finally have the knowledge that the that there was an impact um, on these elections and i think that's a learning process and the way that we obviously we're going to have mitigating measures in place uh, to prevent that from happening for interference from happening but we also need to learn as much as possible from from the past 
you know, elections of how do we handle situations in which we actually know that a certain um, election result was impacted by a particular message. So I was thinking about where we've come from, where we are at the moment, and where we're going to be going. And um, we know that there's a long history of electoral interference in the US by foreign um, actors, foreign countries, um, hostile states and friendly states. Um, British intelligence meddled in US politics in the early part of the Second World War to try to pull America into, into the war. Um, MI6 thought that they did a very successful job of doing so with their disinformation forgeries that they slipped to the um, Roosevelt administration and helped to bring uh, America into the war. Fast forward um, to the 1980s, Soviet intelligence um, was doing everything that it could to try to interfere in the 1984 US presidential election. Um, I can um, give you and your readers, maybe we can put them on the website, um, some of the declassified CAA reports about the 1984 US presidential election, where Soviet intelligence was doing everything it could to undermine politicians, particularly um, Reagan, who were hostile to Moscow and promote its favored candidates. So that all sounds very, very familiar. But where we are at the moment, where we're going, well, as um, Magda and Dolph have pointed out, that, that we are really in a transformed information landscape. And the thing is, this isn't going to just stop right here, right now. It's only going to get more and more extreme, uh, in particular the digital revolution and the blurring um, in cyberspace of um, virtual reality and reality. And I, I foresee that if we're going to be having this conversation in 30 years time, um, we will be doing so um, with technologies that blur the distinction between um, reality and, and um, virtual existence, uh, be it through holograms, through it, through, uh, uh, you know, immersive social media technologies. So that seems to me the direction that we're going in, that as much as I want to say that there are answers from history, that the, the transformed nature of this um, landscape that we're in, history only gets us to, to up, up to a certain point. The principles can remain the same. But as, he, as Dov said, um, first and foremost, there's a recognition of the serious nature of this. Second of all, we keep going back to this, but I think so much of it turns, it, um, turns on it. It's about broader social um, education and um, awareness. So the more technologies make the lines between fact and fiction blur, the more alert the public uh, needs to be about the pernicious nature of, of um, people who want to deliberately distort reality. So we're really, we're, we are really, whether we like it or not, we're in a, um, a battle for reality, it seems to me, a struggle for reality, um, with these sort of existential issues that you touched on, Andrew, um, about what is truth. They're only going to get more and more pronounced um, in the future. I'm not worried about the... Um, 2024 election i'm worried about the the elections uh you know 30 40 years from now um and what they will look like um and the strategy that we the problem is developing a strategy right now um will it be uh, will it keep pace with the technology uh changes under underway 
and I, I fear not we're always going to be playing catch up. But as long as we go back to the sort of the things that have um, held in place for centuries, uh, education, trying to figure out what facts are, not believing everything that you read, testing a hypothesis, just because you read it on the internet doesn't mean it's true. Well, those issues, um, you know, that have the same underlying principles have been there since <laughs> ancient times. That's a very thoughtful response, and there's some very big questions about the future of humanity involved there. Although I was thinking when you were when you were um, discussing the 1984 election, it, it was a spectacular failure because, as I recall, Reagan won 49 states. <laughs> Absolutely, and that's really the that's that's the key lesson. You see that the strategy has been the strategy has been the same. Um, it's mm. to do everything they can to um, undermine politicians who are hostile to Moscow um, and promote favored. And that's not that's not unique to, uh, to, to to Moscow to Soviet Russia and Russia today. Let's um, let's look at this from a slightly different angle in terms of electoral interference. Are intelligence agencies gathering like hoovering up? big data on 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 a future potential political candidate are they hoovering up information so that 30 years down the line they can bring up someone's internet search history to uh, discredit them or bring up their the books that they got out of their university library um, when they were searching a paper on uh, debates within European Marxism or something like that, are they are they looking for ways to discredit not candidates in this election or 2024, but are intelligence agencies looking for ways to discredit people that are contrary to their interests 30, 40 years down the line? Do we know, Doug? I would say that from what I know about such meddling so far, it seems that it's a very relatively short term scene. That is, you know, we see usually a government saying about half a year, a year before the elections, oh my God, this particular guy is running. If he wins, you're doomed, you know, or the opposite. This guy has been in power for four years. If he stays in power, things are just going to get worse for us. We have to kick that guy out, so to speak. So it's a relatively short-term scene. You know, they see an election coming along, and they then uh, start looking for ways that they can interfere, see if a local actor is willing to cooperate with them, and so forth. So I don't see. So from what I know so far, they usually do not plan that many years in advance. You know, they don't start. You know. 20, 30 years before I'm starting vacuuming every would-be university student in to see if they can, you know, maybe one of them will one day become, you know, a prime ministerial candidate, so to speak. They usually don't think that long ahead and they usually, you know, don't think more about the here and now. So I would be less worried about such long-term planning. That said, of course, if, you know, massive big data collection becomes feasible for decades and decades and decades without you know blowing up blowing out every server farm possible we could see in the far future situation in which governments decide just you know to vacuum everything 
for decades and decades and decades, and then just one day dig back and look for something in the same way that they would in today's world, for example, you know, if a candidate they don't like comes to, uh, you know, comes is running in an election, start, you know, digging dirt in them like an opposition research, so to speak. So I think we should be less worried about, you know, such long-term thinking because usually this type of meddling is done as a short-term thing. So I, but of course in the, in the future, if, you know, massive data collection for decades becomes feasible, it's possible that they just keep it around one day for that purpose, so to speak. And I, I, I mean, uh, sorry, Michael. Sorry, I was just going to, yeah, I was just going to say, I think one of the, the, the challenges we'll see is that a lot of organizations are going um, digital, right? So they're storing a lot of information that's going to be available online for years and years to come. It's the digital footprint is going to be there, making it easier, you know, whether they do it um, over a period of years or whether they do it when they realize that the candidate has become a viable candidate. Uh, it's not going to matter because the technology will progress, right? But you've just you now created another problem <laughs> because it's, it's not going to be just intelligence agencies that will be accessing this information, right? It's going to be private, you know, companies, organizations. There will be non-state actors, like hackers around the world. So if, whenever you have an issue with, you know, Magda Long or you know Andrew Hammond. All you need to do is, you know, look at all the organizations we've been affiliated with. There's going to be data there, uh, you know, for years to come. So it's not just the intelligence agencies that I'm worried about. It's, 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 it's I think it's become a bigger, or it will become a bigger problem. Koda, you wanted to comment? Yeah, I was just going to say that I agree with what, what's been said so far. We, I mean, China in particular is in a drive to collect as much data about people as possible um, and this is going to be another sort of major theme of um, our times of this century is that information is power and china is in a in a, in a race to collect as much data as much information about people all across the world um, as it can um, to your point then to what extent with this enormous database of everything from biometrics, how is that going to be used at some future point um, is a very uh, alarming um, thing that I think that um, civil liberties um, in, in the West, we haven't even come close to addressing this, um, you know, and but to your other point, uh, at the moment, you know, who who is actually knows more about my internet um you know uh online habits what i do it isn't the u.s government that's for sure we don't know about what china is doing but we certainly know that the big massive social media um tech giants know a lot more um about really <laughs> know a lot more about myself than i probably even know about myself in terms of um, <laughs> what i want to to buy what i want to to do and those adverts that pop up um you know, number of times they go, oh, actually, I could really do with one of that. Well, that's an <laughs> algorithm busy, busy at work. Again, it's only going to get more and more extreme, I think, as we, as we go forward. And I suppose that, you know, I was, I was making a bigger uh, 
point just to illustrate it, but you wouldn't even have to do it for everyone. I mean, if you just wanted to say, look at uh, people who go to top tier universities, you know, disproportionately they become political leaders. So you can you can probably, you know, you can you can probably focus your collection like in ways just now in lieu of some bigger data hoovering um you know mechanism you could probably just focus it in at the moment and say listen there's a pretty good chance that people from university x are going to be in political power at some point so let's just look at them or in the united states you could say let's just look at people that are studying the law uh let's look at congress uh you know a lot of lawyers there so i guess there would be ways to do it i hope i'm not giving any uh, hostile intelligence agencies and various ideas. If you could just give us historical context on intelligence agencies and electoral interference, like what are some of the earliest examples that we have? Um, so I know that the principle has been there going back to the ancient world, but if we're just thinking about intelligence agencies that, you know, our listeners will understand, you know, the three letter acronymed ones, for example, what are some of the earliest examples we have of electoral interference in those agencies? I mean, in terms for your listeners, um, I think that the one that might be of interest is um, the CIA's interference in the Italian elections in 1948. Oh, so yeah. um, one of the first activities that um, the newly founded Central Intelligence Agency conducted after its founding in 1947 was to interfere in the democratic elections in Italy in order to prevent uh, communists uh, gaining power in that country. Now, sometimes it's the way that this is described is that the CIA um, kind of did so in a vacuum. But in fact, we now know from Soviet records that um, Soviet active measures were very busy um, in Italy trying to subvert those same elections in Italy in just the same way the Soviet regime had subverted um, uh, quasi-free elections in Eastern Europe. Um, so the CIA knew about this, they knew about the tradecraft, and in the own words of the, one of the CIA's early um, leaders, you need to fight fire with fire. And that's exactly what they did there um, by bribing politicians, discrediting, um, discrediting socialist um, politicians, to insinuate that they're actually uh, communists. And the, um, the election was, the operation was uh, a success insofar as um, uh, communists did not take power and the moderate um, uh, democratic um, party won in Italy. That's not to say that the CIA actually swung the election. Um, the CIA thought at the time it did and um, subtly pointed out to Truman, the president, that they uh, did. But I think historians are agreed that actually there were much larger forces at, um, at work there. Um, and that, again, echoes with what we've been talking about in this podcast of what actual impact does it have? Well, um, if you look at sometimes if you look at the reports of intelligence agencies, they have a vested interest in exaggerating their own influences on world activities. And it's only over time when we can look um, back with hindsight and see, well, actually, there were much broader structural um, issues at play there. Well, th thanks so much. I think we'll wrap up there. <laughs>
The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information.